Um, I really stuffed up. If I'd known the audio book was the way it was with what did you say? One hundred and sixty. 166 actors, and these were his friends. I heard somewhere that Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation was one of the main characters, and I think he's the one because he's got such a distinctive voice. He, mm. His character has a woman come in his home. They get married, but he doesn't make love to her because he's old and disgusting and she's beautiful and young. They are eventually – she eventually falls in love with him and they go to make love and a big wooden pillow falls on his head and he dies. And so the whole book, he's walking around with an erect penis. Oh, my God. Waiting for the moment. <laughs> Ghostly blue balls. That's terrible. That's I terrible. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Pleasure of the Text podcast, a shared imaginative space where readers and writers make meaning together. We are your hosts, Shannon and Gareth. Hello, Shannon. Good morning. How are you going? I'm really good on this fine Saturday morning, and I'm really excited to be reviewing Pastoralia for our book review segment today. Yeah, let me hold that up. I think I've learned how to do it. Oh, that yes. is perfect. I see a cave yeah. and a woman in cave. skimpy uh, bedwear. Well, no, that's that's her day wear. That's it's hot oh. out there in the in the cave, and uh, it's very fifty um, foot woman. It's got that whole kind of giantess thing going on. Yeah, uh, I like that. I'm assuming it's a man's legs slash feet just lying on the ground, lazing about. <laughs> Typical. Yeah, and well, is he though, or has she stabbed him with that uh, little rock thing she has in her hand? It's almost a knife. Oh, I did not it's see like, that. Like a flint. I think it's a flint, actually. But you could do a damage a with a flint. a case of foot as more details become more obvious in your cover. <laughs> right. Now, just for the viewers watching on YouTube, you'll see that my hair has left a wet patch on my shirt because I don't know how to dry my hair properly. I have tried to cover it up with this lovely brooch a friend gave me for Christmas. And now I can see that it looks like I've stabbed myself with the brooch. And this is a blood patch, uh, which would make a great prompt for a story, I feel. But maybe not. Yeah. I don't know. And I feel that with all these references to stabbing and bashing people with rocks or guitar brooches, um, Pastorelia is not a mystery or a murder novel. <laughs> well played. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Pastorelia was written by George Saunders and it's a, a collection of short stories and potentially the first book could be referred to as a novella. What would you say to that, Gareth? Because I was reading a review. Someone said the uh, titular uh, title Pastorelia was a novella. Well, no, that's, that's a really good question. Uh, I don't think anyone 100% agrees on what length a novella is. Yeah. Um, and certainly short stories seem to be able to be any length at all. Because um, short is such a subjective thing, isn't it? So I don't know. And then there's a novelette, I believe, floating around oh, there, there as well. Yes. Oh, my God. People just love throwing labels around on things. <laughs> They do. I suppose I would have said it was a short story, um, not just because of the size, because see, size is really misleading. Um, it's it's a story that uses repetition, I think, very effectively, um, and that pads it out necessarily because it, repetition does tend to pad out work. Um, uh, but the scope of the tale, in in my view, makes it a short story. That's how I read yeah. it. Um, I'm going to want to get you to explain a bit more about how you think it's using repetition uh, very well. But before that, I'm going to give a quick bio on George Saunders because he is cool. quite an impressive uh, man and author. Mm. So George Saunders is the author of 11 books, including Lincoln in the Bardo, which won the 2017 Man Booker Prize for Best Work of Fiction in English and was a finalist for the Golden Man Booker, in which one Booker winner was selected to represent each decade from the 50 years since the prize's inception. The audiobook for Lincoln in the Bardo, which featured a cast of 166 actors, was the 2018 Audi... Audi? Audible, yeah, Audi Award for Best Audiobook. 
His stories have appeared regularly in The New Yorker since 1992. The short story collection, 10th of December, was a finalist for the National Book Award and won the inaugural Folio Prize in 2013 for the Best Work of Fiction in English and the Story Prize Best Short Story Collection. He has received MacArthur and Guggenheim Fellowships, the Penn and Mullenwood Prize for Excellence in the Short Story and is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In 2013, he was named one of the world's 100 most influential people in the world by Time magazine. In his support of his work, he has appeared on the Colbert Report, Late Night with David Letterman, All Things Considered and the Diane Rehm Show. He was born in Amarillo, Texas and raised in Oak Forest, Illinois. He has a degree in geophysics from the Colorado School of Mines and has worked as a geophysical prospector in Indonesia and a technical writer in Rochester, New York. He has taught since 1997 in the creative writing program at Syracuse University. Syracuse, yeah. Um, I mean, wow. I did want to talk about how he started off – as a geophysicist, and he uh, mentioned that he used to write the technical reports for projects that they were doing in Indonesia, and this is kind of what he thinks a lot of his uh, short uh, Hemingway-esque style comes from. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a possibility. I think the, the, there's a few things that need to be cleared up. Um, I think George Saunders is an impressive man and an impressive writer. Uh, but it must be said that every uh, male writer of distinction in America is described as Hemingway-esque. It does get a bit tedious. He's not Hemingway-esque. I don't think he is at all. Um, he's much more of a humorist. And uh, I mean, we were talking about um, Robert Benchley, uh, you know, when we would, when we would, talking about Dorothy Parker because the two always go together, Robert Benchley and Dorothy Parker. I would compare George Saunders far more to Robert Benchley as a, as a writer and a stylist. It's um, funny that so you say that. that Hemingway reference. Wait, 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 because yeah. I'm pretty sure he refers to himself and his writing style as Hemingway-esque. Well, that's very kind. I, I would like to say that my work is Shakespearean. However... <laughs> Uh, that doesn't make it so. And I, I don't think stylistically there is that much similarity at all. Um, the same is said about Carver. Carver's a lot closer to, to Hemingway, I guess. Mm. Um, but they're not really that useful as comparisons, really, because people have – I mean, Hemingway certainly, his style shifted across uh, what he wrote and when. And uh, – yeah, it's, it's just something you say to make someone sound good, but I don't think it's often an accurate thing. So I just wanted to blow that up and be a real pain in the ass. Also, in terms of the many successes of Pastoralia, the collection, mm. well, so now the stories, going back to The Falls, um, The Falls was published in The New Yorker in 1996, this was then followed by Winky, the end of Furpo in the world. No, sorry, Barber's unhappiness. No, I was right. I was right the first time. <laughs> the end of Furpo in the world. Sea Oak, the Barber's unhappiness, and Pastoralia all were published in the New York Times, oh. which is certainly a great uh, leg up for any writer to have that much of their work published in the New York Times. I know that. Um, uh, Saunders was saying that around 1998, uh, he was quite desperate to get some work published because he couldn't make his bills for his family. So it shows, uh, you know, how hard it is to be a, a working writer. Yeah. Um, but he had that support, which is terrific and, and, and well-deserved too. Uh, in terms of awards, I thought it was quite interesting. Pastoralia uh, was an O. Henry Award Prize story in 2001. Winky was a prize story in 1998. 
Sea Oak was an O. Henry Price story in 1999. It also got nominated for the Bram Stoker Award, which I think is quite funny. Um, and The Falls was an O. Henry Award Prize story in 1997. Can you explain what the O. Henry so, Award is? Um, well, O. Henry is a very famous American short story writer. Uh, so it's a prestigious award for a short story. Right. Um, I, hopefully, it says, you know, an O. Henry Award story. So I think they give it to more than one. And just as well, because 97, 98, 99, and 2001, if that was the only award they were giving out, you'd be a bit worried about the scene if, if <laughs> Saunders yeah. just wins it every year by default almost. Um, I guess the point I'm... Uh, the point I'm trying to make, um, i start that again. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that uh, while Saunders is a really good writer, I really like his work. He's also, I guess, a writer that has been very accepted by the American literary establishment. And that's always worth noting just when you look at his work and sometimes you think, well, this is really good. But some of the comparisons I'm seeing don't make sense to me. Yeah. Uh, like Hemingway, I don't know. In some ways he's better than Hemingway, but uh, in other ways he's not. <laughs> so now as an, as an example of his wonderful use of um, repetition, and there's bound to be spoilers, folks, because, uh, you know, when I start talking. So here's a little segment. Bastard, she says, and hits me with the flint. She's a good thrower, and I almost say ow. Instead, I make a horse-like sound of fury and consider pinning her to the floor in an effort to make her submit to my superior power, etc., etc. Then I go into my separate area. I put on my footies and tidy up. I have some cocoa. I take out a daily partner performance evaluation form. Do I note any attitudinal difficulties? I do not. How do I rate my partner overall? Very good. Are there any situations which require mediation? There are not. I fax it in. Now, that's his answer every single day. And as it turns out, uh, his his partner is actually not uh, Janet. She's actually not the best partner. So what's happening here, of course, is that the the character in Pastoralia works in a theme park, a sort of a theme park come museum. And he plays a caveman throughout the day. And Janet is his cave woman. Uh, they are in, related in no other way than the fact that they work together. They have separate rooms. He drinks cocoa in his. Um, and they have fax machines in their separate rooms and so forth. And so they spend the whole day pretending to be cave people in a cave. And very, very, very occasionally someone actually comes and watches them. And that's Pastoralia in a nutshell, without totally spoiling the story. Uh, what did you think of that one, Shannon? Um, well, I've known that we had to read this story for a while for our book review. I downloaded it and I read the first two, three, four pages. I'm like, yeah, okay. And then the day was coming very quickly to the day we had to record and say something intelligent about this book. So I had to quickly knock it out. I think Pastorelia was the story that made me struggle to get into this book. Uh, in terms of, because we talked about for Bora Chung's uh, Cursed Bunny, the order in which you put the stories, I don't understand why the story was put first. Um, maybe you had some thoughts on that. Oh, not not especially. I, I don't think you'd put The Falls first because it's quite short. I wouldn't have put any of the short ones well, first. Well, in terms of my favourite ones, Winky and uh, Sea Oak, uh, they were easy uh, to get into. Uh, in terms of the repetition of Pastoralia, I found it annoying. Um I don't know. I didn't have – I have a lot of respect for George Saunders as a writer. I loved Lincoln and the Bardo, uh, and I do think this was the catalyst for that book. But my enjoyment of Pastorelia, the short story, um, was quite low. 
Okay, okay. Well, let's let's just put that aside for just a moment and jump onto Winky. Can you can you just give us a very quick, hopefully non-spoilerish overview of what Winky is as a story? Uh, so the story of Winky starts off with a hard done by men attending a self-development seminar where I'm pretty sure the tagline is don't let people shit in your oatmeal. Um, and it's pretty funny because the main speaker is saying how, you know, my brother used to shit in my oatmeal and he keeps talking and then you find out his brother was in a wheelchair and you're like, oh God, this man's just horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just as a side note, I was having some porridge this morning and I always put sultanas in it and I was sitting there eating it and then I had that image and I was like, wait a minute. And I looked at my cats and I thought, have I left this porridge unattended at any point? <laughs> No, that's fine. Anyway, back to you. Just thought I'd share. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the self-development guru, self-made, uh, starts talking about how he can overcome people shitting in his oatmeal and they go through into a tent and he's like, here, puts a baseball bat in his arms and like, bash this uh, dummy. I'm like, oh, no. Anyway, so the character that is shitting in our main character's oatmeal is his sister who's living with him and he wants to ask his sister to move out. And then uh, we cut scene to Winky and we learn a bit about Winky, um, who is a lovely but incredibly uh, discombobulated woman, a bit all over the place. <laughs> um, and that's, that's a lovely way of putting it. Yeah. Very religious, very religious, and very grateful for everything she has. Yeah, and most, I kind most of, importantly, her brother. I really enjoyed that actually. Uh, the the contrast between the two characters, and then the end. I thought that was really beautiful because I think what is common in all of these stories is this um, dichotomy or juxtaposition between being optimistic and having a sense of fatality, and. Uh, there's a lot of family members, so mothers, sisters, so brothers, so forth. And that's one area that we feel kind of optimistic, optimistic, but also have the most level of disappointment around in our lives. Uh, so I think George Saunders did that really well in a lot of these stories and especially in Winky. Yeah, I agree. Winky was a beautiful story. I think it works the same way as Pastoralia, but I think Pastoralia – and I guess that's why I thought, let's just jump to Winky for a minute. I think Pastorelia does set up Winky. I don't know why Pastorelia was first, but I think they do read very well together. Mm. And I think Winky's impact is greater yeah. because of Pastorelia. Um, because essentially, I mean, the way I read them was we have this idea about strength and goodness. And characters make decisions that are perhaps not in their best interest, uh, but are born out of a desire to do the right thing, essentially. And particularly, you see that in Pastorelia, and I think in Pastorelia it's actually handled in a more sophisticated way. It's a longer story. There's a lot more going on. But in Winky, it's really crystallized because the brother goes home and He's got his head full of how he's going to be empowered and set boundaries and, uh, you know, live a certain way and be a winner. Um, but he's a very weak man in, in many senses. He doesn't have a lot going on. And it's not really his sister holding him back. And I think, although he's very resentful, my sense is that his final act of doing nothing um, was actually a strong act and it was the act – of a good person. Like this was him in a sense, uh, the goodness in him was in many senses represented by his relationship to his sister. Yeah. That's how I read it. I do agree on that. And um, comparing that to Pastoralia in terms of him doing nothing was sending the same facts note every single time. And then the act of doing something, he lost in the end. He lost a friend. He lost a companion that he actually enjoyed being with in the cave who understood his uh, situation. And he got what he wanted in a sense, which was someone who would really lean into the role yeah. uh, of the cave woman. And she leaned in so hard, 
it almost felt like his days were numbered. Yeah. Um, but again, he was a very sympathetic character. He's, you know, got a sick son. He tried really hard to support Janet. We had this other character, Marty, with his family. And I thought Marty was really important in sort of framing the main character's relationship with his family because they're not there. We only hear about them through faxes. Um, and yeah, I, I thought Pastoralia was actually quite a beautiful story. I, I enjoyed it. I think it was, um, uh, both stories seem to be critiques of, or in fact, the entire collection virtually seems to be a critique of capitalism yeah, and American sort of economics in the way it intersects with American society and class. And I know they say they don't have classes in America, but you know, they do. And in that way, um, um, you know, and I just go, nah, uh, in that way, this book really reminded me of this book. Uh, Got to learn to do this properly. Oh, there we go. Knock 'em Stiff by Donald no. Ray Pollock. Yes. Uh, obviously, this is not a Knock 'em Stiff review segment, so I'm only going to mention this briefly. But this is another book where um, the economical and uh, societal spheres of American life are critiqued. And I. Now, I'm pretty sure that most people would say George Saunders is a better or more significant writer than Donald Ray Pollock. I do not agree. Um, I think Donald Ray Pollock is a stunning writer, and I will, I will fight anyone who says otherwise, or probably not, actually. Uh, but he does the same sort of thing, and it's very funny too, but it's very dark, and it's extremely critical in an overt way. Yeah. Of the way the American society functions. And Saunders uses light humor and pathos to do a similar thing. And I think it's interesting that Knock'em Stiff isn't a bigger book. And I suspect that's that distinction is why. Yeah. Also, uh, Donald Ray Pollock, a lot closer to Hemingway's style than George Saunders. Yeah. Well, you've brought up the Hemingway thing again, so I'm going to read. So he um, actually used to write for The Guardian, not Hemingway, but George Saunders, what writers mm -hmm. really do when they write. Uh, um, and I'm going to put this on the show notes because I thought it was a really beautiful article. So how does he refer to himself as Hemingway? Let me go to the section. What does an artist do mostly? She tweaks out what she's already done. There are those moments when we sit before a blank page, but mostly we're adjusting, adjusting that which is already there. The writer revises, the painter touches up, the director edits, and the musician overdubs. I write, Jane Kane, uh, sorry, I write, Jane came into the room and sat down on the blue couch. Read that, wince, cross out, came into the room, and down and blue. Why does she have to come into the room? Can someone sit up on a couch? Why do we care if it's blue? And the sentence becomes, Jane sat on the couch. And suddenly it's better, Hemingway-esque even. Although, why is it meaningful for Jane to sit on a couch? Do we really need that at all? And soon we have arrived simply at Jane, which at least doesn't suck and has the virtue of brevity. Yeah, that is beautiful. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in the sense that much is left unsaid mm. uh, and the seven-eighths is beneath the water in the, in the watery subtext of meaning. Uh, sure, he's like Hemingway, but really any writer that, that works in contemporary literature right now that's any good is Hemingway-esque in that sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, fiction isn't meant to bash you over the head with its ideas. They're all meant to sneak in under the radar <laughs> in the subtextual space. And sneaking so, yeah. under the radar is something that he does really good with his uh, satire and commenting on yes. uh, American society. He certainly does, which I feel is an almost perfect segue. Why don't I draw attention to it? You know, Saunders would say, don't draw attention to it. Almost <laughs> perfect segue to uh, Sea Oak. 
Was it Sea Oaks? Uh, sea Oak. And I do have a quote from Sea Oak because we are talking about uh, critiquing of American society. So uh, Art Bernie uh, gets scared to death on a couch, living in a crummy kind of dilapidated building, and she comes back alive and her body is decomposing, an ear drops off, her arm falls off. But this is what she says to her nephew. Why do some people get everything and I got nothing? Why is that? Um, yeah. yeah. And I mean, that would be almost heavy handed if it hadn't come out of her mouth and the way the character develops. The, the whole kind of clockwork of that story is getting us ready for her to say that. Yeah, so I agree. Uh, and it's very clever. And just to, um, I'm going to give you a, a counter quote. Uh, oh, I'll raise you one. Is, I'm going to slap this down. <laughs> this is a good example of how Saunders prepares the reader for that statement. But it's also a really good example of why his writing is delightful and how he uses humor. So here's the quote. At Sea Oak, there's no sea and no oak. Just a hundred subsidized apartments and a rear view of FedEx. Min and Jade are feeding their babies while watching How My Child Died Violently. Min's my sister. Jade's our cousin. How My Child Died Violently is hosted by Matt Merton, a six-foot-five blonde who's always giving the parents shoulder rubs and telling them that they've been sainted by pain. Today's show features a 10-year-old who killed a 5-year-old for refusing to join his gang. The 10-year-old strangled the 5-year-old with a jump rope, filled his mouth with baseball cards, then locked himself in the bathroom and wouldn't come out until his parents agreed to take him to Fun Time Zone, where he confessed, then, drove, then dove screaming into a mesh cage full of plastic balls. The audience is sh shrieking threats at the parents of the killer, while the parents of the victim urge restraint and forgiv forgiveness. Yeah, I'll read that sentence again. The audience is shrieking threats at the parents of the killer, while the parents of the victim urge restraint and forgiveness to such an extent that finally the audience starts shrieking threats at them too. Then it's a commercial. Yeah. Yeah, right? That's pretty great. This is why we love George Saunders. I love the baseball cards in the mouth. That's a wonderful touch. I it's, just uh, loved the locking himself in the bathroom and screaming until he got to go to Fun Zone. Fun Zone. It's a very different yeah. moment from strangling a five-year-old to death and then, oh, you know, it's time for some fun. I want to go to Fun and then Zone. he leaps into the balls yeah. to try and escape. And you do, don't you? You think when you see those big mesh pits of balls, you think, I could get lost in there, never come out. Yeah. Uh, when you're a kid. I mean, not now. Uh, now would be wrong. One more for you. One more quote. This isn't the only other quote I have from the book, actually, I think. Uh, this is also from um, She Oak, but it's also just lovely. Down in the city are the nice houses and the so-so houses and the lovers making out in dark yards and the babies crying for their mums. And I wonder if, other than Jesus, has this ever happened before? Maybe it happens all the time. Maybe there's angry dead all over, hiding in rooms covered with blankets, bossing around their scared, embarrassed relatives. Because how would you know? Mm. I think Sona does a great job of playing with the abstract and reality, skirting that line really well. Yeah. Yeah, he really does. Um, so Sea Oak is a, is a real winner. Um, and of course, we didn't mention this, but it features as its protagonist a male stripper, which you don't see every day, um, who's trying to maintain his allure, I suppose, and is concerned that he's going to end up getting a bad rating. Yeah, um, it's it's such a great because uh, you would think because uh, he's got a sister and a cousin females you would think they would be the one stripping but no he's the one stripping and to raise extra money which is dead auntie Bernie's idea he's going to show his cock to uh, certain high paying patrons at uh, the place that he works at 
Which brings us to the end of Furpo in the World, which for me was not a good story. I don't know why. Um, it, I guess after three stories that deal with what to me feels like characters either acting out of character or truly acting in character despite what they've been telling you, uh, the end of Furpo in the World as soon as we get the sense, I believe it's Cody, the main character. So Cody's riding his bicycle around, dreaming of revenge. And that's that's pretty much a synopsis. Um, and then, of course, that doesn't happen. And you know it's not going to happen. Uh, the way it doesn't happen is, is interesting. And the end is interesting. But I guess um, by the end of Furpo in the World, I was at a little bit of a cursed bunny point where I felt like we were getting the same kind of idea presented to us again and again. Um, maybe in the O. Henry Award stories with a year between them, you get to each one and on its own merits, you think, yeah, great. But when you read them in order, for me, the end of Furpo in the World was the point where I was like, okay, now I need something different. And does uh, Saunders provide something different after Furpo? Because I've got nothing to say on that one. It, I'm, I'm glad it was short. Um, yeah. No, no, he doesn't. He provides us with the barber's unhappiness, which as a character study is uh, a beautiful piece of writing. And I was very struck. Um, I was very struck by all the characters in the barber's unhappiness and, and the way they felt incredibly alive to me. I think as a piece of writing, it's it's beautiful. And I loved the ending, but it does exactly the same. I, I don't want to say trick because that sounds cheap. <clears throat> it's sort of, it has the same kind of structural conceit as the previous stories. Um, it's probably, with Sea Oak, it's probably the, the best story I think but it's so late in the collection and we've seen this before um, but I would say The Barber's Unhappiness for me was the second best story in the collection uh, but its position weakens it yeah what do you uh, think well you mentioned that the, he's got these incredible characters that he developed. So the first one, we've got a character that acts out of turn, typically of what he should, a character trying to act differently who doesn't, and then you've got a character acting exactly the way he presents himself throughout the whole piece. Um, and then later on you're going to get a different take on a character. So I think he's created the same character but applied a differentness to it in a different environment, which is interesting. Um, but to me, like you said, I and I agree on this, it kind of seems like it's not the same trick, but it seems to be the same uh, play of deck of cards, if you will. It's variations on a theme. Yeah. Uh, and it's an interesting theme. Uh, I guess, you know, the Barber's Unhappiness is a really strong piece of writing. Sio uh, and Pastorelia, and to some extent Winky, benefit from how bizarre the settings are. Um, but but all in all, I think, I mean, this was sec uh, Saunders' second collection of stories, and one of the uh, reviews I read on it said that compared to his first collection, this was a lot more inventive in terms of the scenes and the scenarios rather and um, and the use of some uh, odd elements. I believe that's what they said. Um, so maybe he was just progressing in this direction. I mean, Lincoln in the Bardo is a very, very strange piece of work and it really works for Sta uh, Saunders' style. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because something that uh, he does really well in Pastorelia is the dialogue of the characters, the inner dialogue, and also the dialogue they have with other people is so realistic. Uh, it's very character-driven. I don't feel at all um, plucked out of the 
living within the moment of each story. And that's something that it does really well in Lincoln in the Bardo. It's just people's dialogue uh, throughout the whole um, – well, I listened to the audio book, which was great, but people's dialogue throughout the whole book. So in that book, he really leaned into his strengths, and that's why I think this was the the catalyst or the, the playground that he developed that skill set to later on uh, – be able to win the Man Booker Prize for Lincoln in the Bardo. Yeah, yeah, that 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 does that does seem right to me as well. Mm. Um, it would be interesting to see what uh, Saunders wrote next after Pastoralia, um, because th- thus far for me, it's Pastoralia, Lincoln in the Bardo. That's what I've read of Saunders. So the books that um, he has released since Lincoln in the Bardo is A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. In A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, George Saunders guides the reader through seven classic Prussian short stories he's been teaching for 20 years as a professor in the prestigious Syracuse University graduate MFA creative writing program. Paired with stories by Chekhov, Torgenev, Tolstoy and Gogol, these essays are intended for anyone interested in how fiction works and why it's more relevant than ever in these turbulent times. Saunders approaches each of these stories technically yet excessively and through them explains how a narrative functions, why we stay immersed in a story and why we resist it and the bedrock virtues a writer must foster. And so his, that is the second latest one since Lincoln the Bardo and then he's now releasing another one called Liberation Day. The best short story writing in English is back with a masterful collection that explores ideas of power, ethics, and justice and cuts to the very heart of what it means to live in, in community with our fellow humans. With his trademark prose, wickedly funny, unsentimental, and exquisitely tuned, Saunders continues to challenge and surprise. Here is a collection of prismatic, resonant stories that encompass joy and despair, oppression and revolution, bizarre fantasy, and brutal reality. Gosh, doesn't that sound like a synopsis? So many words. I know. What do they tell us about it? It, it has a bits in it, really. <laughs> And, you know, Americans love doing this. The best short story writer in English. He's American. We're we're claiming it. And it's like, well, you know, lots of people can speak English. You've got, you're competing against the UK, Australia, New Zealand, and every other. Anyway, I'm going to stop there. (laughs) Yeah, it's, um, it's not his fault. I don't know. It's I, these poor copywriters. They're like, oh God, I don't know. What, what do we say? Let's say he's prismatic and let's let's uh, juxtapose uh, bizarre and real, and we'll just do a bit of that. And to be honest, I've been there. I know. <laughs> I know what it's like. You're like, I don't know what to say. Grab oh, the thesaurus <laughs> out. What what can I use with really cool? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, I used to do a lot of theater reviewing. And I used to think to myself, if the writer was dead and I didn't like the play, I could sort of slap the the writing around if I didn't like it. But if they were alive, particularly if they were local, it's like, well, they can't rewrite it. So it feels a bit redundant now. So I'd sort of like try and look for some acting I didn't think was that good because they can always do better another night. And you kind of um, you're trying to just find your place in this kind of reviewing scene, synopsises and reviews, synopses and reviews. You're you're always sort of aware that there's going to be more, and you have to kind of keep coming up with lots and lots of interesting contrasts that aren't like the last interesting contrast you you crafted, and. Uh, and also, you know, you're writing for a publisher. The publisher wants you to say that the book is the greatest book you've ever read in your life. It's blown your mind. Your mind is blown. And that's why you can't write anything more sensible than this synopsis. I find that if I'm reading a review and they're telling me the synopsis, I know they're lying because they don't have anything else to say 
about the book. So they're heavily relying on, okay, I need to fill this amount of words to get paid to feed my family. What do I do? Uh, (laughs) And Saunders would appreciate that. He's been there. So Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's true. So he kind of got distracted there. But Saunders is doing some amazing stuff. And I do have uh, kind of the backstory of Lincoln in the Bardo before we go on to the next story, if I'm allowed to share that. All right, go on then. So this is, again, from what writers really do when they write. Many years ago, during a visit to Washington, D.C., my wife's cousin pointed out to us a crypt on a hill and mentioned that in 1862, while Abraham Lincoln was president, his beloved son, Willie, died and was temporarily interned in that crypt, and that the grief-stricken Lincoln had, according to the newspapers of the day, entered the crypt on several occasions to hold the boy's body. An image spontaneously leapt into my mind, a melding of the Lincoln Memorial and the Pieta, I carried that image around for the next 20-odd years, too scared to try something that seemed so profound, and then finally, in 2012, noticing that I wasn't getting any younger, not wanting to be the guy whose own gravestone would read, afraid to embark on a scary artistic project he desperately longed to attempt, decided to take a run at it, in exploratory fashion, no commitments." My novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, is the result of that attempt, and now I find myself in the familiar, rightly fix of trying to talk about that process as if I were in control of it. Uh, so this is why I think uh, Pastoralia was kind of the uh, turning point for him. He's developing those skill sets, which until he makes up his mind in 2012 to start writing Lincoln and the Bardo, he's had that training ground yeah um 20 years or so so does that precede his that would precede his published output wouldn't it this was very early on yeah yeah wow that's a great story Mm. yeah he tells a great story to saunders he does. He does, uh, which brings us rather neatly. Oh, I did it again. You did. You oh. just like to prove how smart you are. <laughs> <laughs> and yet I fail every time. Um, <laughs> this brings us to The Falls. Um, the Falls is about a character behaving out of character, uh, essentially. I want to read the ending of The Falls because I really loved the ending. Yeah. Um, and I really don't think it matters what the story is about. And by this point, if you don't know the characters going to do something they quote unquote wouldn't do, uh, you've been not reading the book very carefully. Or listening to our review. <laughs> right. All right. So this is quite a long quote, but it, it needs to be. But when he rounded the bend and assessed the situation, He found no rope bridge or decisive men, only a canoe coming apart at the base of the snag and two small girls in matching sweaters trying to bail with a bait bucket. What to do? This was a shocker. Go for help? Sprint to the outlet mall and call 911 from Knife World? There was no time. The canoe was sinking before his eyes. Um, Sorry about that. The girls would be drowned before he reached Route 8. Could one swim to the snag? Certainly one could not. No one ever had. Was he a good swimmer? He was mediocre at best. Therefore, he would have to run for help, but running was futile because there was no time. He had just decided that, and swimming was out of the question. Therefore, the girls would die. They were basically dead. Although that couldn't be, that was too sad. What would become of the mother who this morning had dressed them in matching sweaters? How would she cope? Soon her girls would be nude and bruised and dead on a table. It was unthinkable. He thought of Robert nude and bruised and dead on a table. What to do? He fiercely wished himself elsewhere. The girls saw him now and with their hands appeared to be trying to explain that they would be dead soon. My God, did they think he was blind? Did they think he was stupid? Was he their father? Did did they think he was Christ? They were dead. They were frantic calling out to him, but they were dead, as dead as the ancient dead, and he was alive. He was needed at home. It was a no-brainer. No one could possibly blame him for this one. And making a low sound of despair in his throat, he kicked off his loafers and threw his long, ugly body out across the water. 
that's marvellous, isn't it? Mm. I don't know if the other character was really necessary in that story. No, there is another character, uh, Cummings. Cummings. Yeah. Um, I don't know what he's doing there. I suppose one thing is that um, the main character, whose name I've forgotten, uh, has a very skewed picture of Cummings. Maybe there's something in that, but I didn't grasp what it was. But, I mean, that's that's fantastic writing and that's the power of Saunders and um, – Certainly, I would recommend Pastorelia. I would, and I w- I'm going to give it uh, four stars uh, because I think they're all strong stories, but I don't think it works entirely as a collection, in my opinion. Yeah. What are you, what are you what are you giving it? Uh, I want to say three point five. Um. It's not the best short story collection that I've read, but from an intellectual point of view, I can appreciate what he's attempting to do, the style that he's using, even using the point of view. So we've talked about Third Person Limited in another uh, podcast that we did, you know, the the internal dialogue being different to the actions that each character takes, which is, mm. you know, good use. Uh, he's very funny, satirical. I wish I had that ability to be funny. But overall, yeah, 3.5, 3. Look, you're probably right. I mean, I thought about this a lot. I I think the stories are between 4 and 4.5. I think the collection is between 3 and 3.5. So really, I mean, you know, if we're going to get really technical, I'd give this 3.75. But I think if you give it 3.5 and I give it 4, I feel like uh, that's about right. Yeah. I don't like giving books 3.5, though, because that's a 7. And if you just want to be sitting on the fence, you give things 7. Would I read it again? No. So it would have to be a 3. Because out of these two collections, the ones that – like you did it with Curse Bunny. There's only two stories out of this that will probably stay with me for a while, and that was Winky and She-Oak. Which are two out of six ain't so bad. Yeah, I mean, well, two out of six is a solid uh, 33%, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Which isn't, which isn't so good. <laughs> <laughs> um but no, I, I think yeah, it's it's sort of between a three and a half and a four somewhere in that area. Yeah, but saying I that, um, I do think he's a master of the craft that he utilizes. Um, I loved Lincoln and the Bardo, and I know that was a very fifty-fifty split on a lot of people. Some people loved it, and some people hated it. I don't know what my experience would have been if I had read the book as opposed to the audio book. The audio book was just something really special, and I loved listening to it while I was meant to be working at an actual job. <laughs> it's but, an extraordinary yeah. experience I hear. I read the book. Um, I really stuffed up. If I'd known the audio book was the way it was with what, did you say 160? 166 100s? actors and these were Good his God. friends. I heard somewhere that Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation was one of the main characters, and I think he's the one because he's got such a distinctive voice. He, mm. His character is um, he has a woman come in his home. They get married, but he doesn't make love to her because he's old and disgusting and she's beautiful and young. They are eventually – she eventually falls in love with him and they've got to make love, and a big wooden pillow falls on his head and he dies. And so the whole book, he's walking around with an erect – penis oh my god waiting for the moment <laughs> ghostly blue balls that's terrible that's I terrible know. That is oh my such, goodness i mean it's perfect saunders humor uh, it's also very I, saunders isn't it because yeah. he wrote the book he it wasn't on his gravestone he should have gone for it and i think this guy should have gone for it really clearly uh what a bummer yeah yeah um, so definitely get on to um, the audio book of that. It won the award, the Audi Book Award, for a reason. 
Saunders, I'm excited to see what he's got uh, coming out next. We'll have to have a look at the fish pond and um, Liberation Day, but not uh, for our next book review because actually next month mm. we are going to be doing a theme and it's going to be romance given that we're entering to the mu- uh, month of February. Valentine's Day is coming up. So do you want to talk about what we've been thinking about for February, Gareth? Well... I think next week we're going to have a big discussion about the romance genre in all its many facets. It's been reduced somewhat, I think, in the public imagination to a certain kind of uh, sort of Mills and Boone Harlequin romance novels. But there's a lot going on in romance, and it gets a gets a bit of a rough deal. So we're going to like go out swinging for romance. Go out swinging for romance. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And uh, later in the month, we're going to do a writing exercise episode on dun 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 sex scenes in writing. I'm already terrified, uh, and that should be a lot of fun. Uh, and what else have we got in the month of February? Have we got anything else worked out? Uh, we're also going to be doing book reviews and we're going to do something a little bit different because we're going to do two book reviews. One's going to be a rom-com and one is going to be a dramatic. Would that be a rom-dram? Rom-dram, dram-rom. So what book were you thinking for the rom-dram? For the rom-dram, yeah. Look, I'm I'm thinking Anne Tyler. I like Anne Tyler. Uh, and I thought maybe one of her classic books, which was turned into a wonderful, wonderful film, if you don't want to read the book, The Accidental Tourist. Um, Both the book and the film are wonderful, and uh, it's been years since I read the book, so I'm going to come out swinging (laughs) for The Accidental Tourist. Swinging for romance. And And what are you going to give us? I'm going to look at one of my favorite uh, romantic comedy writers. So she is uh, Marion Keys. She does something similar to Saunders, I think. She does a great job of using comedy and satire. Um, I will be sitting on a couch having a hot cocoa, um, Pastor Aurelia reference there, and just burst out laughing because she paints these scenes so well. Uh, So Grown Ups is the latest book that she has out. So I'm going to be reviewing that book. Well, that's great. So an old book, a new book, a serious book. Serious? That's probably not the right word. A somber book. Yeah. A book of yearning and a book of hilarity and warmth. And I'm trying to get to romance without saying romance. Uh, Attraction, affection. Attraction. Warmth and affection. The flirtation of language. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I have to jump off and uh, we'll see everyone next week uh, for our themed month of romance. Um, start buying those chocolates, start buying those roses because it's going to get hot, it's going to get steaming, it's going to get romantic. And I'm really excited. Gosh, me too. I didn't, I didn't know how to follow Sweet that palmed. up. I'm, I'm nervous, but also, you know, and resonating. I, I feel prismatic the- <laughs> in, in my feelings about this. And it's bitter reality for me that that's what it is, isn't it? The sort of absurd dream of being a romantic figure and then the bitter reality of being oneself. I think we'll be dealing with all of that and more folks next week on The Pleasure of the Text. 